If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Were the 20s really that roaring? And if so, who actually enjoyed the best of the era? And were the parties really as debauched as popular culture suggests? In this episode, Sarah Churchwell answers some of the big questions on the so-called roaring 20s. As always with our Everything You Wanted to Know series, our questions are drawn from a mixture of popular internet search queries and ones that you've submitted via our social media channels. Putting the questions to Sarah was Emily Bruffett. As we're talking about the 1920s, the question that I wanted to start with is one of our top internet search queries, which is, what actually was the Roaring Twenties? Well, I'm actually really glad that you asked that question. It's it's something that interests me a lot is how vernacular phrases and how language evolves and why do we get these kinds of associations? Where do they come from? So the Roaring Twenties actually originated as a phrase describing individuals. It was a way to describe young people in their 20s 
um, particularly young men who were enjoying their roaring 20s. And so it was like sowing your wild oats and like, you know, uh, before you settle down and all of that kind of thing. And that was a phrase that was used like in the 1900s. And then it got adapted to the 1920s because the 1920s was an era that was dominated by youth. It was the, it was the kind of explosion of youth culture. And it was the emergence of kind of our ideas about adolescence and youth culture. And so it became an appropriate way to talk about this decade that seemed to be enjoying its roaring 20s. And it was the 1920s. But so the phrase didn't emerge into popular use until around 1924, actually about halfway through the decade, as people were starting to get a feeling that this decade had a personality and that it was kind of like a person and it needed to be described in that way. And that was when the phrase started to become popular. Uh, So it actually was used during the era to describe it, but not until some way through the decade. So you spoke a little bit there about it being coined because of its relation with youth. So one of the key questions that we've had across social media, it's like sort of a key search query as well, is to what extent were the 20s really roaring for everybody? Was it this something that permeated all of society? It's a really good question because it implicitly recognizes that what applies to some groups of people does not necessarily apply to everyone across society. And it is indeed the case that the 20s only roared for certain segments of the population. Now, I should say I'm speaking throughout as an expert on the American 1920s more so than the European. So I'm really going to be talking about the the US for the most part of my answers. And I'll try to, to say when I'm differentiating, but certainly in terms of America, it was very much a middle-class phenomenon, the Roaring Twenties, middle-class and above. And for working-class people, it was the Roaring Twenties apply in part because of prohibition and the sense that the doors were blowing off. Prohibition, of course, massively backfired. And so it triggered this huge party and kind of everybody was roaring drunk. And so roaring also, you know, kind of picks up that connotation. But in terms of where we think about the 1920s as a, as a period of boom and roaring in that sense, the economy was roaring and that everybody was having a great time and it was all really fabulous. That really wasn't true for everyone. It was particularly not true for the rural poor. Farmers in particular were, were struggling with drought and what was going to become the enormous drought of the Dust Bowl, but it was already the signs of what we would now recognize as climate change were already starting to make themselves felt. And of course, it wasn't true for Black people either. Again, for the majority of the Black population in America, they were still trapped often in rural settings. They were just moving north in what was called the Great Migration and starting to work in factories, but they were paid less than white workers, You know, which shouldn't, shouldn't surprise anybody. For a small coterie of Black people, of artists and intellectuals in New York who became associated with what was called the Harlem Renaissance, there was, again, a flowering and a, a roaring, if you like, of African-American culture. And of course, course, with the coming of broadly mass media of technological change, including radio and recording, you had an explosion of African-American music into popular culture. So you can think about it roaring in those senses for certain segments of the population. But economically, it was really the middle classes who were benefiting. Poppy Halliwell on Instagram has asked us this question about Were the social changes for women really noticeable at the time or have they been exaggerated 
could we maybe say that this was a time of increased liberation for young women? I, I mean, these are all really, really good questions. And I like the skepticism that's being brought to bear here of like resisting these, these cliches and received wisdoms. But in this case, it's actually true. Women definitely were emancipated in the 1920s. First of all, let's remember they got the vote. So they got the franchise in Britain in 1919, or at least partially some segments of the female population in, in uh, America. In theory, all women got the vote in 1920. It was a universal franchise for women. Now, again, as ever, and I have a feeling I'm going to be saying this a lot during our discussion today, what was true for white people was not necessarily true for black people. Uh, In theory, all women got the vote. In practice, white women exercised the franchise much, much more extensively than black women were able to, particularly in the South where they were, their vote was suppressed in all kinds of ways. But so women, first of all, they, they begin the decade with political emancipation and that franchise is very real. And as a result of that or c- correlated with it were also major uh, economic changes. They began to work in towns and indeed in factories. The, some of the other important technological changes that affected women's lives were cars and trains. So women become more mobile physically and also after the war. So just as we saw, we would see later with the Second World World War that when women went to work in the factories, they would then refuse to go home to full time or, you know, not all of them, obviously, but but an appreciable uh, proportion of them refused to go back to uh, full time, you know, housekeeping or to kind of traditional domestic separation of, of labor. But you saw that not just after the Second World War, but after the First World War as well. So women had worked um, out of the home in both, of course, Britain and the United States to support the war effort and um, and then continued to work outside of the home afterwards. So you definitely see those kinds of changes and women becoming wage earners throughout the 1920s. Also, prohibition uh, had its effects on women. Suddenly, young women were drinking in public in a way that they hadn't before. And smoking was a very real, uh, again, social change uh, that signaled autonomy and rebellion and social independence. And Perhaps most importantly, contraception became much more widely available. And during the First World War, there were conversations of government programs actually around what they called hygiene. And hygiene was a euphemism for sexual health. And it was really about soldiers spreading venereal disease in training camps. And so there was a whole government educational program around sexual hygiene, which involved reproductive care as part of it. So it meant that they were actually, they had a program for condom use and, um, and other kinds of contraception also became available. Rudimentary diaphragms and things like that became available for the first time. And there's a lot of evidence in the in the records that were left people's journals and you know diaries and letters that these were widely used. So absolutely women in the 1920s, young women had a very, very different experience uh, than their mothers had. And that's not a it's not an exaggeration, it's not a myth. So you spoke a little bit there about a sort of sense of skepticism coming across in the questions. And I think this is definitely true in one from Hantira2000 on Twitter, who's asked, was there a true sense of optimism in this period or is that a myth? And it's also a question that leaks onto Facebook, where one of our users would like to know about 
reflecting on whether the US Roaring Twenties and the sort of sense of the lost generation, how they compare? Yeah, so uh, really, really good questions. Whether there was a true sense of optimism, it's a little bit hard to answer that question because it calls for a massive generalization about an entire country, right? Um, And historically. So for us to say that we can say how people felt 100 years ago, obviously, I can't really do that. What I would say is that, and also, of course, um, things change over the decade. So what I will say is that at the beginning of the decade, there was an enormous amount of anxiety. It is not the case that on January 1st, 1920, everybody went, this is going to be great. Um, There was an enormous amount of lingering anxiety uh, after the war. America was in a recession, a serious recession, and the pandemic wasn't over yet, a a feeling that we can all very much sympathize with. So before our pandemic, I think we had a tendency to look back on it and think, oh, the Spanish flu was over by 1920 and everybody was just ready to party if we thought about the Spanish flu at all, which mostly, you know, we didn't. But now we can recognize much more clearly that they didn't know if it was over yet. They were like watching the headlines, scrutinizing new cases of outbreaks. You can go see it in the early headlines of 1920. They're like, ooh, 200 new outbreaks there. And it looks exactly like our headlines now of like, oh, do we have to watch this? Is it is it about to happen again? So an enormous amount of anxiety at that point. By the mid-20s, when the boom was off and running, yes, there was definitely a widespread sense of optimism. And you get, and, and a really kind of jingoistic, certainly in America, a jingoistic optimism, this sense that, that again, we would see in America after the Second World War, this post-war American hubris, this sense that America's cracked it, like America's winning, and we, we know we've got, the, we've got the economy sorted, and our way of life is going to dominate, and, you know, and, and nothing can go wrong, and a little bit like Gordon Brown's notorious promise that the days of boom and bust were over. There, there was this, there was a, a clearly recognizable sense, certainly in America, that this could go on forever, that, that um, happy days are here and, uh, you know, and, and we don't have anything to worry about. Just as the, as the economy didn't affect every segment of the population positively, so uh, that sense of optimism did not go all the way through society. Let's remember that in, as we talk about the Roaring Twenties and the fun of the Jazz Age, let us not forget it was also the age of the Second Clan, which was on the rise. Lynching numbers were on the rise. Black people were being terrorized in intimidated, driven out of the South, driven North. And the KKK as a terrorist organization was itself responding to intense cultural anxieties of its own. I'm not defending those, as I hope is clear, but but any, any kind of white supremacist movement like that is an anxious response to cultural change. Um, it just responds with violence and horror. And so again, I hope it's clear I'm not defending it. But so there, there's lots of evidence of an age of anxiety and of, and of reaction responses, deeply conservative backlashes to all of this change. You know, you can't call the KKK an optimistic group, right? I mean, that's not what it is as a um, as an organization. And so, you know, uh, it's a what you see is that the 1920s was a time of tremendous social upheaval and of tremendous change. And that some people will greet that with optimism, some people will greet it with horror and dismay. So Siobhan O'Farrell on Facebook has asked us a about was the preceding decade of war and the virus, was that a major influence on the development of the Roaring Twenties? Or would something similar have happened anyway, perhaps due to the spread of media, radio, silent movies and the auto industry? 
Again, a really good question. I'm so impressed by these questions and I'm not just being polite to your audience. I mean, these are really, really smart as I will probably say more than once, uh, um, the ways that, it, that these questions are all resisting kind of cliches and saying, well, you know, is this really the way it happened? So for, first of all, remember that in America, the First World War did not last for a decade. So the United States uh, entered the war in 1917 and ended the war in 1918 um, with everybody else. So we had one year of war, and that's really, really important. Um, it's it's the major difference between the American 1920s and the European 1920s. We had nothing like the cataclysm of war that Europe experienced. Our generational kind of rupture in that sense, where a generation of, of young men was wiped out, was actually the Civil War in the 1860s which was the 1920s grandparents. So the Civil War was to them kind of as World War II is to us. So they would have, in America, they would have seen the Civil War as the time of great cultural trauma. And the First World War was a trauma, but a much lesser one. Um, and so that's really important to bear in mind. The virus is a really interesting one I, because of our current uh, situation. Historians are really reassessing that. We're all looking back to see whether we whether we got it wrong and and to what degree were we making unwarranted assumptions that our understanding of the pandemic now would make us go back and reassess. But it, it is certainly the case that that the war was viewed more obviously as a proximate cause for these changes than the pandemic was at the time. People weren't talking about the flu as something that had changed the world the way that we are talking about our pandemic as something that has changed our society. You don't see those conversations at the time. The really good part of the question then is, would other factors in the Roaring Twenties have created that change anyway? Now, I can't really adjudicate that. It's a hypothetical, right? Can I say for sure? No. But if we just turn the question around and say, were there other equally important factors to making the Roaring Twenties roar? Was it just the war or were there other major factors? The other major factors are huge and often underestimated. So yes, the media is incredibly important to the way that the Roaring Twenties emerged and the auto industry. These technological and industrial changes the emergence of mass culture. I often say that the 1920s is the emergence of American society as we would recognize it today as a kind of modern version of, of you know, modern America in a way that we would recognize emerges at that point. It's dominated by consumer capitalism. It's dominated by uh, an explosion of corporate capitalism driven by technological change. It's an era of tension between labor and capital, of growing inequality and growing anger about that economic inequality. But it's also an era in which people are enjoying new kinds of entertainment, distracted by that, some would say. Um, political activists would say that they are made quiescent by their, um, you know, the opiate of the masses not being religion, but being uh, cinema and radio. And, and also um, magazine culture, which we tend to overlook, but we shouldn't. It was huge at the time. And um, kind of their equivalent of maybe, you know, Netflix or something was where the serial fiction would come in and everybody was reading it and everybody was talking about it. So these forms of mass entertainment that that brought the, the culture together and were very youth oriented and again made the 1920s feel like a very youthful time. All of those changes would have helped create that feeling of the Roaring Twenties, regardless of whether the First World War happened or not, in my view. So I just want to touch on a point that you've been making throughout your answers so far. This is a question from Marav Karlinski on Facebook, who says, 
In what ways were the 20s really different from the pre-Great War, First World War years in regard to inequality, women's rights and racism? I know you've spoken a little bit about it throughout, but can you tell us a bit more about this? Absolutely. So again, the First World War was not as much of of a kind of cultural and social rupture in the US as it was in Europe. So I would not personally say that the First World War changed all of the rules in the United States in the way that it was perceived to have done um, in Britain, for example. Certainly, the the effects of the war on, um, on social change, like women's rights, uh, civil rights, uh, social, racial, gender inequality, to a certain extent, yes, the First World War uh, did have an effect just as the Second World War was going to. So there were black units in, in the war who, uh, that's, you know, it's one of the reasons why black people ended up in Paris after the war as part of the, the expatriate uh, um, you know, the American expat movement in, in Paris, part of the reason that they ended up there was because um, black soldiers had been there and had and had found that they were uh, treated with less structural racism, not necessarily less passing racism, but less structural racism than in the United States. And that's partly why jazz became such a big thing in Paris in the 20s, because soldiers stayed there. And then um, figures like Josephine Baker came over and there was this kind of uh, celebration of, of Black culture there because of the war. So when Black soldiers served in the war... And then came back. They did, of course, demand that they were, um, you know, that they had certain kinds of rights and recognitions. The same arguments that you would see today: if we're if we can fight for the country, why don't we have equal wages? Why don't we have, you know, equal rights under the law? So you see those kinds of um, arguments being made very strenuously and sometimes to some effect. And uh, again, women similarly worked in the factories, worked on the home front, and uh, and and continued to build on those uh, professional advances and, and on um, gaining those rights. But, but I would say that it was more a, a steady, steady progress. And World War I was one step on that ladder of progress, rather than the First World War being some major catapult that enabled people to progress to suddenly accelerate, maybe, but you'd have to kind of argue the case. I don't see, you see much more acceleration after the Second World War, in my view, in American culture than you do after the First World War. So we've spoken about the US throughout. Can we see a sort of similar experience mirrored in other parts of the world? This is a question from Libby Jin on Facebook. And it's similar to, we've had one from Newton007 on Twitter, which is talking a bit more specifically about the UK and the UK experience. Well, look, I mean, I, it would be really fun to have this conversation with uh, with historians of the, the British 1920s and indeed of, of the European 1920s. I mean, we can think, for example, of Berlin in the 20s, right, under the Weimar Republic. Were people more liberated under the Weimar Republic? Now, I'm not a historian of Germany in the 1920s, so maybe I'm falling for the myths, but I feel like they were. <laughs> Um, you know, anything that you see about the Weimar Republic is pretty much, yeah, uh, they were going for it. Um, I mean, maybe I have too many ideas from cabaret, um, but I feel like there, there was a fair amount of, of, of experiment, social experimentation and liberation going on. And of course, that was partly what the Nazis were reacting against, right? Was that sense of cultural decadence, which then they have this reactionary uh, response to, much as the KKK in the US was having a reactionary response to women's liberation, to black people gaining more power, to what in America we would call up right? So people getting above themselves, not knowing their place anymore and having to be put back with violence. So certainly, even as a casual observer 
of the 1920s in other parts of the world, I can say that I see signs like that. And, and again, in the, in the UK, particularly with women, of course, you see that, right? You do see a generation of men having been killed, women very much moving up into professional situations and into economic and professional autonomy, having to, right? They had to be wage earners. They didn't have husbands and fathers who were going to pay their bills anymore. And, and so necessity drives a lot of that, but also opportunity starts to drive it. And, um, and so I think you certainly see those kinds of changes in the British 1920s along gender lines. And we haven't yet mentioned the emergent, well, I mean, I sort of alluded to it with the Weimar Republican cabaret, but the growing emergence of gay culture and, uh, and a growing backlash against homophobia, growing assertion of gay rights. Certainly you see that in the US, in the UK and in Europe, the emergence of, you know, what one might broadly describe as queer culture uh, or queer cultures, I should say. And uh, for the first time, visibly people coming out of the closet, you know, to use a, a, a later metaphor and making their sexuality known, you know, refusing to hide it and and starting to fight to legalize it. This very much ties into a question from Julia Brown on Facebook, who sort of says along similar things of the fact that the LGBTQ community seems to be thriving and that people seem to be open with their identities and that this seems to be hushed up again. But she speaks a little bit about having not heard many sort of first person accounts of this. How do we know about this at this time? Well, there were a lot of first person accounts about it, actually, and both in fiction, broadly described, but kind of semi-autobiographical fiction that was clearly thinly veiled. And then also correspondence is where you really see it. There, there are various diaries as well, where people were more and more willing to record what they were, you know, what their real desires were and, um, and what their sexual activities were, what their sexual behavior was. Sometimes it's still coded. Sometimes it's still in euphemism, but it's code that's very easy to decipher and it's clear what they are getting at, but sometimes it wasn't coded. And, and certainly you have, um, an emerging conversation around gay artists uh, in particular, uh, writers, painters, filmmakers, people living openly with people of the same sex, cohabiting for many, many years, Gertrude Stein, Alice B. Toklas being, you know, one of the most famous, but by no means um, the only. And remember that we're also talking about the emergence of Hollywood at this point. And in the 1920s, you also have uh, a great tolerance of of homosexuality in Hollywood in the 1920s, which was part of the reason for the backlash against it in the 1930s. So again, people living openly with partners of the same sex and uh, cross-dressing. And, you know, I mean, so I'll give, I'll give just a couple of examples um, uh, in particular. So this this questioner might be interested in looking at Juna Barnes's book, Nightwood, um, which is the story of her love affair with, uh, it's a, a very autobiographical account of her. I mean, it's supposedly fictional, but one of the thinly veiled ones I was talking about. Uh, and Juna Barnes was gay, um, of a, her long-term love affair with, with another woman. And, um, and then also a gay man who was a very good friend of hers who was a cross-dresser. Uh, and, um, and it's called Nightwood, which is an amazing, amazing, amazing novel. But also think of, of people like Noel Coward writing plays like Design for Living, which is about a menage a trois. And it is very clearly about a menage a trois. I mean, that's what it's about. Um, and so, you know, you 
can see these emerging stories and uh, and experiences making their way into mass culture, into popular culture, and and that's the that's the evidence that it's that we're that we're registering something that was a very real shift in cultural opinion. This was not happening in the Victorian or the Edwardian era, and it was shut down pretty hard in the 1930s in in various kinds of ways. Could you perhaps tell us a little bit about how it was shut down, a bit about the backlash perhaps? This is a question from Jean Prince on Twitter who says about, was there a backlash against what appeared to be perhaps a greater permissiveness, clothing and behaviour? There absolutely was, but it mostly took place in the 1930s, right? It gathered pace. And so you see a kind of decade pendulum swing where the 20s uh, the permissiveness grows and grows and grows, and the anger against that on the side of conservative society all equally grows. Um, and so the backlash builds momentum. And then the crash in 1929 changes the story. Uh, certainly in the United States, it changes everything dramatically. That was much more of a rupture in some ways than the First World War was. Cultural conservatism starts to grow throughout the 30s to a certain extent. Again, this is a massive generalization, and, and it doesn't hold water very far because it's only true for certain parts of society. All of these generalizations are only ever true for certain parts of society. So yes, you have um, a conservative backlash in the 1930s. And I'm thinking of things like, the, for example, the the rise of the Hayes Code in Hollywood, which is impl- written in, in 1930 and implemented in 1934, which is the famous one where people can't be shown having sex and they can't be shown having drugs and they can't be shown benefiting from immorality and, and all of this stuff. And so these deeply conservative rules about storytelling in Hollywood would, and of course, homosexuality is right out. Forget about that. And adultery can only be shown if people are punished for it and they can't be rewarded. You know, that has to be the wages of sin. And so, uh, so you get those kinds of conservative strands, but it's also a time of great socialist uh, activism. It's a time, um, it's the only time in America when the Communist Party made any real inroads. And so there, you know, there are resistances to the backlash, right? So it depends on how, on how far you zoom in on the culture. If you take a huge panoramic shot back, you might say the 20s are permissive and the 30s are conservative. But as soon as you start to zoom into the 30s, you see all kinds of permissivenesses and resistances and rebellions and revolutions happening at the same time. There's always that kind of cut and thrust uh, socially in a big country like America. You're always going to get that. Rach Hopkins on Instagram has asked us, were the 20s as debauched as they seem to have been in the films and things? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty debauched. Um, I mean, again, look, it's all relative, right? Was it debauched compared to our ideas of debauchery? Probably not. Things have, have moved along since then. It was very debauched compared to Victorian and Edwardian ideas of morality. Absolutely. So, you know, you've got a rise of, uh, of narcotics, of recreational drug use. Cocaine was very, very popular. And, uh, and again, again, I'm going to keep caveating this because I have to among certain segments, right? So among the urban middle class, but yeah, and, and particularly, you know, in the, as you would expect in bohemian quote unquote circles, but there was, yeah, um, a fair bit of recreational drug use of a kind that had not been popular in the United States before then. As I say, cocaine in particular, but also heroin, marijuana. Each of these drugs was troped as um, as being, they were kind of ethnically coded. And so marijuana was very much seen as the drug of Black people, somewhat the drug of Mexicans. You haven't seen the waves of Latin American immigration in the US yet at that point that we would see later in the 20th century. So it's really denigrated as the drug of 
of black people and criminalized as the drug of black people, starting to make untenable generalizations, which I have to stop making because they, they, again, these things break down as soon as you try to make them. Anyway, short answer is yes, it was debauched. Um, there was much more sexual experimentation and um, permissiveness, for want of a better word, than, uh, than there had been before. There was, um, as I've said, there was a rise of much more readily available contraception. And so uh, people enjoyed themselves. And uh, we haven't really talked about prohibition, and prohibition is really, really important here. There was public drunkenness became permissible for the first time in the United States and became cool for the first time. And 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 as part of a backlash against prohibition, which, which massively backfired. Uh, so that, of course, created a more, by definition, it created a more permissive society, except for the people who were on the side of prohibition who were trying to be repressive. So again, you get this kind of tug of war all of the time in American culture broadly, but certainly in the 20s, that tug of war was very, very pronounced. So this brings us on to a question from Chasing Waterfalls from Instagram. He said, what did they actually drink in this decade? Oh, this is such a good question. This is my favorite question. I can answer this question for hours. We could do a whole podcast just on the alcohol of the 1920s. So I'm going to try to make this a short, shortish answer. So basically there are three segments of society and it's, it's very economically driven. Three different things that you'd be drinking in the US under prohibition. If you were rich, you could afford the real thing, which you smuggled in and bought on the black market. So you could get real rums, which would come up from the West Indies on sailboats and come into New York Harbor. You could get real champagne from France. You could get, there was a, what they called a pipeline that came down from Canada. You could get real alcohol through Canada. You just had to pay through the nose for it. So if you were very, very rich, you could get the real deal, the real McCoy. It is a myth that the real McCoy comes from a bootlegger called McCoy. That is a cultural myth. Nobody knows where the phrase the real McCoy comes from. So I'll put that out there. But you could get the real McCoy if you were very rich. If you were very poor, uh, they drank uh, gasoline, they drank turpentine, they drank, they, they would literally mix kind of gasoline and water. And they drank these incredibly lethal combinations that were sold on the street as bathtub gin or bootleg gin or as moonshine. That's if you were the urban poor. If you were the rural poor, you drank homemade moonshine. You drank in the South what they called corn, which was corn liquor. They would literally just put corn into a into jars and let it ferment in the basement and then drink it at the end of the, you know, the end of the season. I don't know how long it takes for corn to ferment, but they would, it would ferment for as long as it fermented and then they would drink corn. And if you were in the North, you would drink wheat-based moonshine or grain-based moonshine. So you would drink wheat or rye or what, again, you know, if you're in Minnesota and you're growing wheat, then that's, you would make your, your moonshine out of. Um, so that's the rural port. Bathtub gin is n- not the same thing as bootleg gin. They're sometimes talked about as if they're interchangeable. Bootleg meant black market. So anything could be bootleg alcohol. It just depends if it just meant that you bought it on the black market. So you could buy the real thing as bootleg gin. You could buy bathtub gin as bootleg gin, or you could buy moonshine as bootleg gin. It all just means you got it on a black market. But bathtub gin was really the drink of the middle classes. And what bathtub gin was, was that what you would do is you could get 100% alcohol. You could get, I think it's ethyl, I always mix this up, but ethyl alcohol, which I think is the safe one. The chemist listening will correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I think that's right. Anyway, you could get the the safe ethanol alcohol because chemists were allowed to sell it for medicinal. I'm doing inverted, I'm doing scare quotes there, very much air quotes, medicinal purposes. Um, You could sell pure grain alcohol. And that's what, um, by the way, that's how Jay Gatsby gets rich in The Great Gatsby. He's selling pure grain alcohol from his uh, drugstores. It's one of the many, many cons that he's involved or crimes that he's involved in, but that's one of them. Um, Anyway, so you could sell pure grain alcohol and you get it from your chemist and then you then had to dilute it and flavor it yourself. 
and everybody had recipes for gin. They passed around by word of mouth and Scott Fitzgerald wrote one down and in 1922, which is the year in which Gatsby is set, and they knew how to make it, but you, but it was supposed to be made, it was supposed to be distilled, right? But instead they're kind of making it with a spoon, which is not how you're supposed to make gin. So what they would do is they would just try to like mix what they would try to, to dilute it themselves. So they would add water and then they would add some oil essences. They would add like oil of juniper to try to make it taste like gin and then stir it with a spoon and hope for the best. And it, and it tasted awful. And it was unbelievably potent because they were starting with hundred percent alcohol and they were getting it down to about 80% alcohol. So, and that is why most of the Americans who were drinkers in the 1920s did have raging alcohol problems later in life or die young because they were drinking very dangerously high levels of alcohol, but they weren't the ones who were going to hospital screaming that they were going blind. They would have alcohol poisoning just because of the concentration of alcohol, but the alcohol per se was safe. It was just too much of it. But the people who were going blind were the poor people on the streets who were being given what they were told was bathtub gin, but had been cut with turpentine, had been mixed with gasoline, had been, had had various other kinds of poisons added to it to either make it taste like alcohol, to cut through something, or because it was cheap. I mean, always because it was cheap, right? So that so the equivalent is very much with recreational drug use today. If you can afford to get very, very, you know, tested, safe, pure cocaine or heroin from your drug dealer, then then you might be safe. But if you get too pure a hit, it will still kill you. Or if you're buying cheap stuff on the streets, it will be cut with poison and you don't know what you're getting. And those were the people who were ending up hospitalized. That's what happened. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So the first transatlantic broadcast was of a a musical. It was a a London symphony um, that could be heard in New York, um, which they saw as this amazing thing that we're listening to music in real time across the ocean. This is so incredible. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. 
This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Lydia the Klein on Instagram has asked us about the fact that because alcohol wasn't prohibited in the UK, what was alcohol use like on this side of the Atlantic? Well, it's a really good question. And again, I don't really know the answer. I won't I won't claim to have an expert answer on that. Uh, what I will say is that, again, the literature of the period gives, you know, a certain indication how mythologized that is, is, is for a historian to tell us. But, you know, if you think about accounts like the Bright Young Things, if you think about, uh, you know, accounts of debutante balls and things like that, certainly uh, drinking, public drinking, and again, drinking is something that sophisticated people did in public at bars. It was definitely on the rise and something that you hadn't seen previously. It is not something that that nice Edwardian women did. And it is something that cool young women, bright young things in the UK and flappers in the US did. So I think you certainly see the the rising trend of uh, drinking as as something that is uh, viewed as a sophisticated you know, pastime. Um, but again, I will defer to uh, to historians of of the UK uh, on that answer. So you mentioned there the Bright Young Things. Now, Colin Lingwood on Instagram has asked, who were they? So the Bright Young Things w- was a, a name that was given by the press, I think. And again, I'm I'm kind of straying out of my area of, of, of full expertise, um, but I think it came from the press. I don't think they self-identified as Bright Young Things at the first, but it was of a, of a, a generation of aristocratic, you know, debutantes. And it was the, the kind of a equivalent of the American lost generation, the kind of post-war generation who were determined to, to have fun after the, uh, the trauma of the war. But it was, it was very much associated with aristocrats, with glamour, with decadence. They were the rentier class. They were, you know, they were living at large. And, uh, so it's the, it's all of that imagery of people in, you know, Brideshead revisited, right. Of people in roadsters sipping champagne out of, you know, out of, uh, coops and, um, having picnics by the road and young men in flannels and tennis sweaters and, you know, young women in, in clinging satin gowns and that whole image, which, which of course is the late twenties and goes into the thirties. And, you know, Brideshead Revisited is a story really about the thirties, not about the twenties. So we're starting to blur our boundaries here a bit. I'm pretty sure the Bright Young Things is a late 1920s phrase, but once again, I will have to defer to UK historians to correct me on that. One of our top internet search queries is about the development of the movie and music industry. So could you tell us a little bit more about this? Absolutely. Hollywood really takes off in the 1920s and silent cinema was a uh, huge booming business. It was incredibly popular and it was received with all of the Jeremiads against the the trashiness of popular culture that any new cultural phenomenon is inevitably greeted with, beginning with the novel, which was, you know, denounced by ministers as um, it was going to rot the brains of women and lead to social destruction and all the way up to video games today and, and, you know, social media and TikTok and, you know, every new thing is always going to destroy the world. And silent cinema was one of the new things that was going to destroy uh, culture and destroy young people, rot their brains. It was uh, incredibly popular and it was also affordable. 
So unlike today, where going to the cinema is priced out of the ability of working class people to go regularly, originally because cinema was seen as a kind of throwaway, disposable culture, it was also quite cheap. So people could go in and, you know, um, all walks of life across the United States, people could enjoy the cinema. And so Hollywood began developing the studio system quite quickly. The 20s, of course, is the era of Charlie Chaplin. It's the era of uh, Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks. Mary Pickford, America's sweetheart, although she was Canadian, but hey, that's okay. And Lillian Gish. You see the invention of of full-scale narrative cinema with, of course, The Birth of a Nation, The Birth of a Nation, the first full-length narrative film uh, that D.W. Griffiths made based on Thomas Dixon's novel, The Klansman, um, in 1915. The Birth of a Nation uh, also has the, so it has uh, several distinguishing factors. One is that it's the first full-length uh, uh, mo- narrative movie. It's the first cinematic masterpiece. It's also, without any question, the most racist movie ever made. And it helped uh, very much. Um, it inspired the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan. So um, it did uh, uh, probably did more harm than maybe any other single film as well. I mean, I would struggle to think of another film that did quite as much damage as The Birth of a Nation did, but it was wildly popular and, um, and, and it kicked off narrative cinema. And, um, and after that, people were just scrambling to make it. So Hollywood was creating systems where it could start to churn this stuff out. And again, because you've got various kinds of, of new technological innovations that make the transportation of cinema, of, of anything, of any consumer good, mass transportation becomes possible. So you've got automobiles, you've got trucks, you've got trains, so you can get them everywhere. You can, you know, set up a movie house and, and you know, in whatever was your local vaudeville theater or whatever, you can go, go see these movies. So um, that exploded in the early 1920s. And then sound comes in 1928 to revolutionize everything. Music as well. So the first recording devices, uh, radio becomes, of course, the BBC was founded in 1922. Uh, the first transatlantic broadcast happened soon afterwards. They were struggling for content in ways that, again, would be familiar to us with the new technology. How do you fill it with content as they tried to figure out what radio should do? what it was for. It doesn't, it wasn't initially, they, they didn't instantly go to news. They didn't instantly go to radio performance or radio plays, but they did go very, very quickly to music. So the first transatlantic broadcast was of a, a musical. It was a, a London symphony um, that could be heard in New York, um, which they saw as this amazing thing that we're listening to music in real time across the ocean. This is so incredible. So they went very quickly to music and, and recording devices, of course, became um, popularized at the same time, we have gramophones and and early, not uh, not vinyl LP, but wax. So you have wax uh, records, and you could play popular songs on the gramophone. And so this is when we have the earliest recordings of popular music. In particular, two things happen in terms of music uh, in America. One is the explosion of Tin Pan Alley, because again, you can record it. So what had been in the teens very popular, the songs of Irving Berlin, George M. Cohan, these um, really popular songwriters with their Broadway hits, which would then get popularized across the country with 
sheet music. So you would get your songs and everybody, you know, somebody would play it on the family piano and everybody would gather around the piano and sing the song. And then that gets transformed by the increasing availability of records. So on the one hand, you have American popular music, Tin Pan Alley musical, what will become the American songbook in the 30s uh, and into the 40s and 50s is is in its seed form in the 20s. And the other major thing, of course, is the is the birth of the blues. Now, of course, the blues were born on slave plantations. That's where the blues was actually born. But the the uh, music industry around the recording of the blues happens in the 20s when Black musicians migrate up from New Orleans, up the Mississippi to Chicago, my hometown, and they set up a blues recording industry in Chicago and begin recording the earliest blues. And this is where we have the great recordings uh, that, thank God, captured some of those um, uh, great early blues musicians. And um, and so that uh, was also um, exploding at the time in the 20s. And of course, you know, figures like Louis Armstrong are uh, getting their start as well. So not just blues, but jazz. And um, we could do a whole thing on jazz, which is a whole nother subject. But so that's also, uh, of course, being recorded and popularized at the same time. We've been talking about it as the Roaring Twenties, but it is, of course, also the jazz age. Sarah Henderson on Facebook has asked us a bit about what was the fashion like in the 20s? And this kind of links into a question from Kate Scattergood on Twitter, who talks a little bit about the drop waist fashion trend as well. Yeah, um, I'm glad this question got asked because we have this assumption that certainly in America, but I think in Britain as well, that women were wearing short dresses from the off and that basically from, you know, January 1st, 1920, women were in skirts that were knee length and fringed and and um, sequined and, you know, the feather boas and, and the whole nine yards. But as with anything, this trend evolved. So that image that we, that a lot of us have fixed in our heads of what the 1920s flapper looked like is actually from very late in the 20s. That's really from 28, 29. It's right at the end of the decade. And what actually happened in the US is that when women got the vote and prohibition came in, it is true that women's hemlines shot up in 1920. They went from being ankle length in 1919 to being close to the knee, just below the knee in 1920. But then they precipitously dropped back down again and it didn't last very long at all. It was kind of, it was as if you know, when you look at the the fashions of the time and you look at the pictures as they progress month by month, it's almost as if America was kind of like testing the water and then it shocked itself, like almost like a woman pulling up her skirt and then going, oh no, and then like dropping it again, you know, as if like, I've just gone too far. So it's like the, the culture was kind of testing the water and discovered that that was just too much too soon and it was not ready for women to have uh, skirts that short. And then what happened was there was a gradual rising of the hem over the next five years, basically. And every year they went up a couple of inches and they, and it just was a much more gradual move back to where it had been in 1920. And by 1925, it was pretty firmly around, around the knee, but not in the early, uh, early years of the decade. As far as the drop waste goes, the drop waste was, it came in for a couple of reasons. First, it was a reaction against the corsets and the silhouettes of the Edwardian and Victorian era, most uh, obviously. So it was both a, a rebellion against the clothes of your parents, but it was also associated with women's emancipation. So instead of having these very constricting undergarments, it was part of dress reform. It meant that women were uncorseted. Um, now, 
they would still often wear corsets underneath those drop waist dresses because unless you have a very certain kind of figure, drop waist dresses are difficult to wear unless you've actually really restricted yourself anyway. So they would still wear various kinds of restrictive undergarments um, depending. But it was certainly a move toward, toward more liberated dress, toward freer moving dress. And it was part of the sudden veneration of youth culture. So of course, it suggests that young women are very youthful. It's kind of, it's a pre-sexual look for women. Um, it's a kind of teenaged look. The other thing, we've mentioned contraception, but in terms, and I should have actually mentioned this earlier, but it really has a lot to do with fashion, is one of the other innovations that happened that changed women's lives was the invention of something called Kotex, the sanitary napkin. And up until that point, and so there, there have been these changes around sexual hygiene, and that was the word that they used, as I've said, that, that, that broadly around sexual hygiene, but that also involved technological innovation. And so women could wear dresses like that because they could keep themselves clean while they were menstruating um, because they had access to sanitary pads and not long after that to tampons. So the, you know, it's important to remember that one of the reasons, and again, I'm not a fashion historian either, but I think my colleagues in, um, in fashion history will bear this out that, you know, one of the reasons reasons for layers of petticoats you know one was that it was cold everywhere so it keeps you warm but for women one of the reasons was that it it was uh, a, a way to deal with with menstruation when you don't have any other way of disguising that as it were um and so you need layers of fabric to deal with it um, so the the social emancipation of young women in the 1920s was very real and fashion was one of the kind of symptomatic results of that. You can really see that emancipation in the fashion. So I've got a question here that's really going to tie into a few things that we've spoken about so far. It's from Katie Body on Facebook. And she says, what were the mod cons of the 1920s? What did people do to make ends meet? I think she speaks about her grandmother who had her teeth removed and replaced by dentures as it would just be cheaper on her husband, uh, be less in the financial burden on her. Okay. Well, that sounds like a very British story to me, which isn't to say that it didn't happen in the US, but I'm, I'm not aware of it happening in the US. Well, it's certainly not as like a trend. <laughs> I haven't run across it. In terms of labor-saving devices, it is the beginning of, of the changing. Of, and again, it leads into women's emancipation um, that they've got labor-saving devices. So you don't have obviously the full array that we have today, but you have the coming of Hoovers, which is a big deal. You have the you have refrigeration, which is a very big deal. So the the beginning rudimentary refrigeration, ice boxes. Um, obviously means you can shop ahead. It means you can prepare food ahead. It means that you're much less tied to the kitchen and the daily preparation of food. And you, now uh, these are not necessarily yet widely available, but they're starting to come in. Things like electric irons and electric kettles. You've got electricity is really what changes things, right? You've got electricity coming into the homes and um, you go from in, in the 19 teens to a society that is um, mostly gas powered to one that is mostly electrified by the end of the 1920s. And that changes everything, you know, in all kinds of ways. But particularly, again, it has a huge effect on, on domestic labor. So I think this brings us to the new consumerism and the economic boom. So could you tell us perhaps a little bit, what was the main driver of the economic boom? This is a question from Instagram. So yeah, so there were a couple of reasons why um, the boom happened. 
I've mentioned technological progress a lot because it's incredibly important to the 20s. And they really had a technological revolution that was akin to ours. Um, the ways that we are feeling like the whole world has changed because of, you know, of, of the, you know, new digital, the digital revolution and all of its permutations and, and all the various ways in which that's changed everything for us. They had the first wave of that really with radio, cinema uh, in particular, and, you know, and, and even television, you know, people were experimenting with television much earlier than people think. Now they weren't in homes yet, but they, but the, the technology was coming and people were aware it was there. So you got this kind of um, movement toward, you've, you've got the explosion of mass media, but at the same time, the mass production of commodity goods. Right. One answer to the question of why did the boom happen could be summed up in two words, which is Henry Ford, by which I don't just mean cars, but what is known as Fordism, the industrialization, the standardization of mass produced goods through a factory so that you can get the same thing all over the country. Everybody can suddenly get uh, that you, you move from a self-sustaining uh, subsistence existence where you actually have to make your own clothes and grow your own food and you know and, and on that level to actually being to having a consumer economy that you you don't have to produce you can consume that's an incredibly important part of of the boom i've mentioned the electrification of the United States, that was also really, really important. It means that you can work outside of daylight hours. It means that that your relation to labor and and the the growth of the office class, the professional class, can really increase. There was also uh, very, very cheap credit at the time, and there was a stock market bubble. So the stock market was not regulated; it was radically unregulated, and and so. What they thought was a boom turned out to be a bubble. It was actually driven by speculation, and and a lot of it was driven by swindling and fraud. The original Ponzi scheme happened in the early 1920s. Charles Ponzi was a swindler it, who was arrested in 1920, but Ponzi schemes as such did not stop, and they just changed their form. And there were all kinds of swindles that were perpetrated. There was what was known as bucket shops, and basically they would sell stocks. That they, they would take money pretending to buy stocks and then just not buy the stocks, pocket the money and then assume that they could get more money from the next guy to pay you off if you demanded your dividends. And eventually the bottom would fall out of those kinds of pyramid frauds. And, and that was basically what they were, was a, was a series of pyramid schemes. But during the time, they didn't know that. So it drove a boom until it collapsed. And it collapsed in 1929 because it was a bubble. I've got a few questions here about this context of the period as well. So one from Instagram, which is, how significant was the rise of fascism before the economic impact of the Wall Street crash? That's a really good question. Uh, it, the, the, the answer is going to be different in the United States and in, uh, in Europe. Fascism as a word emerges into English in 1921 with Mussolini, right? So it's Mussolini who, who of course, uh, uses the term to describe his party. And as he comes into power in 19, uh, as he comes onto the world stage in 1921 and seizes power at the end of 1922, fascism makes its way into English. And you start to see people talking about this new political movement called fascism. It is, of course, 1922 is also, of course, the time at which Hitler also begins to make it into the news as this uh, new political force in Germany. And they're kind of watching him warily and, and, and they start to see the associations. When fascism rose, came into the cultural conversation in the United States, it was at exactly the same time that the second clan was on the rise. And the word fascism in the United States begins to be used at the same time to describe the clan. So they start to say, if you want to know what, fas what this fascism thing is that this guy Mussolini is doing in Italy, it's like the clan. 
And then they also say, if you want to know what this new thing the Klan is, because it was new in America as well. So if you want to know what this new thing the Klan is, like what Mussolini is doing in Italy. So they just defined it reciprocally and, um, and, and everybody understood them as being the same movement. They were ethno-nationalist, paramilitary groups. So, I mean, that's what they were. So they saw them as being um, very much the same. And indeed the clan, although it was the second clan was anti-Catholic um, early on, it tried to form an alliance with Mussolini. It didn't, it didn't take, but they tried. Uh, so they actually were trying to create kind of international fascist alliances. So there was a lot of worry about it in the early 1920s. There was a lot of, um, a fair amount of discussion around fascism, but then it started to drop out of the American political conversation and it was taken over by by the concerns around the crash, certainly by the end of the 20s. But it never dominated the American conversation. It's very discernible. It was there. People were worried about it. They were watching it. But America in the 1920s was very isolationist. It was an isolationist time. And it was a restrictionist time. It was anti-immigration, very strenuously anti-immigration. They were. This is when America instituted its first major racial quotas, um, began in the early 1920s, um, racial and ethnic quotas um, in the early 1920s and through to the 1924 Johnson Reed Act, which was a major a piece of uh, restrictionist immigration. And it was on the basis of that 1924 National Origins Act, which just put ethnic quotas on immigration based on the nation of your origin. It was on the basis of that law, for example, that German Jews fleeing Hitler were turned away from the United States because the quota had already been filled. So even 20 years later, that law had not been um, had not been changed. So mostly, mostly what you see in America at that time is the popularity of ethno-nationalist isolationism. It was very, very popular and very mainstream stream. Um, conspiratorial anti-Semitism was, yeah, by which I mean the idea that there was a Jewish conspiracy trying to take over the world, that the protocols of the elders of Zion, which of course is a, is a fraud, that it was real, that it was true. This was promulgated by Henry Ford. So all of that was very, very mainstream. Um, and it was associated very strongly with a slogan called America First. And America First was an incredibly popular slogan in the 1920s. It was absolutely everywhere. When Donald Trump resuscitated it, people thought that it was something that had begun with the Second World War, but it was actually something that began with the First World War and was popularized throughout the 1920s. So all of the things that we associate with America First, they also associated with America First, and that was basically what you saw in the 1920s. So there was concern about fascism in certain quarters, but by and large, it was uh, it, it was an, uh, an isolationist and economic protectionist, ethno-nationalist um, moment in American history. I think that very much ties into another one of the broad themes. And it's a question that's been asked on Facebook. But what was the impact of mass immigration during this period? This Facebook user has specifically asked about specific immigration from Southern Europe. That is a uh, another very good question, and, and particularly around the specificity of Southern Europe, because that's actually really important. It's Southern Europe and Eastern Europe. That's what what happens at this point in time. So, and, and Eastern Europe in particular, large groups of, of Jewish migrants coming from various parts of Eastern Europe, what was um, becoming the Soviet Union and, and then, but, but other parts of Eastern Europe as well. So what happened was, um, this is a, a large and complicated story, so it's hard to um, summarize easily. But the, the response to mass uh, immigration, so the, the question implies the right answer, which is that the, the face, if you like, of immigration had changed. So the first waves of mass immigration in the United States were in the 1840s and 1850s, and that was largely Irish and German. 
And that gave rise to this new thing called nativism, which was coined in the 1840s and 1850s to, really 1850s, to respond to these waves of Catholic immigration in particular. And then through the 1880s and 1890s, there was a backlash against uh, immigration from Asia, particularly Chinese immigrants. So, which saw the Chinese Exclusion Act of the 1880s and 18, the acts of the 1880s that does what it says on the tin, right? Wholesale exclusion of Chinese immigration from the United States. And then in the in the early teens, the next wave of immigration comes, um, as your question rightly implies, from Southern Europe, and as I said, also from Eastern Europe. So now you get. Um, the waves of Italian immigrants in particular, and um, but but from uh, all over Southern Europe. And this fed into um, dominant ideas of scientific racism at the time, which were also known in America and in Britain as Nordicism. And Nordicism meant that Nordic people were racially superior to uh, non-Nordic people, as they called them. And Nordic people was anybody from Northern Europe and non-Nordic people was literally everybody else in the world. And, um, and so it was broadly, Nordic was used there sort of to mean Northern. And so Northern European good, everybody else, inferior, subhuman, unwanted, stay home. These are the people who are going to be described as, and, and this is language that, of course, during, uh, that the Nazis would apply specifically to Jews. But um, in the United States, you see it applied to immigrants uh, uh, across um, these cultures, Southern and uh, Eastern European immigrants. They're described as vermin. They're um, described as uh, in subhuman animals. They, they like living in filthy conditions, and that's why we can't bring them in because they'll bring down the quality of life. They are um, intellectually inferior. That's why they're poor. They're going to uh, um, lower the breed. It's eugenicist thinking, specifically eugenicist thinking, and it was uh, explicitly, consciously, outspokenly eugenicist thinking. If we intermarry with these people, it will lessen the quality of our stock, and so we must not allow them in. And that that was the anti-immigration argument that was made at the time. It was wildly popular. It was uh, made in the name of America First, and it resulted in the passage of a series of restrictionist immigration laws in the early 1920s and through the 1924 National Origins Act, which was the Ethnic Quota Act that I um, that I mentioned. The other thing that this rise of, of waves of immigration from Southern Europe and Eastern Europe did was it motivated, it spurred on the second clan. The second clan was not only an anti-black white supremacist movement, it was an anti-immigrant uh, group, it was an anti-Catholic group, and it was an anti-Semitic group. So um, throughout the 1920s, Jews were the victims of clan violence. Uh, immigrants, were, foreign nationals were the victims of clan violence, not just in the 20s, also in the teens um, running up to it, but um, throughout the 20s as well. So coming to the end of this episode, I've got a couple of key questions for you. One of them being, what really brought an end to this era? Three words brought an end to this era. Stock market crash. <laughs> it was just over. And most eras don't end quite so abruptly where you know the day when it ended. But, you know, October 29th, 1929, it was over. Um, and, you know, Scott Fitzgerald later said that the Jazz Age jumped to its death 
from uh you know from from a 10 story office window you know kind of thing like like that that image of the um of the stockbrokers and the bankers who supposedly um were jumping to their deaths uh, uh, that's also broadly a myth by the way um there were not there was not a spate of suicides there were a few but there wasn't a kind of epidemic of suicides of bankers jumping out of the window there were a few but yeah that was what ended it it the boom was over and um and within a year two years there was 25% unemployment across the United States. So, uh, you, you know, you're not throwing parties with that. Um, you know, people were losing, you know, people were losing everything. They lost their businesses. They lost their homes, you know, so-called Hoovervilles, which were shanty towns that people erected, uh, you know, who had formerly been middle-class professionals and were suddenly sleeping rough in tents. And that's, this is when you get the explosion of migrant workers, of itinerant workers, um, because there simply isn't work at home anymore. And, um, and the, the depression was, uh, the stock market depression was then exacerbated by a tremendous drought. Which was known as the Dust Bowl, which took hold by the by the early 1930s. Um, it was at its worst in the mid 1930s, but it was taking hold by the early 1930s. So you had tremendous drought and uh, and famine at the same time. So that brought an end to the Roaring Twenties quite uh, quite violently. And so my final question to you would be: This is from Sam on Twitter, who has said, "How has popular media influenced public memory and historiography of this period?" Well, another excellent question for us to end on. We end as we begin with um, with tr- tremendously good questions. The media has hugely influenced public memory of um, the 1920s and historiography. It's only quite recently that some historiography, and, and I will say including my own, if I may, um, is beginning to push back against some of the myths and the cliches. Like, for example, that women were in short dresses all the way through the 1920s, which is just a myth and easily disproven if you just look at the newspapers. Um, I mean, it's not hard. But people were quite lazy about it and willing to take these cliches from the end of the era and superimpose them. Hollywood has a lot to answer for. So, you know, in particular, we could think about things like the Hollywood versions of Gatsby. So the great Gatsby, you know, filmed in, uh, in 1970, I should know this, 1973, I should know, um, Jack Clayton's Gatsby with Robert Redford and Mia Farrow and Bruce Dern wildly miscast as Tom Buchanan. I'll just put that out there. And, um, and then of course, Baz Luhrmann's more recent adaptation in 2013 with Leonardo DiCaprio, these, uh, you know, totally unrealistic, totally absurd uh, depictions of of the 1920s that, you know, would have had Scott Fitzgerald absolutely hooting with laughter. And, uh, you know, he he and Zelda walked out of the first, uh, out of the silent film. The first film of, of Gatsby was in 1926, and he and Zelda thought it was so awful that they walked out of it. So I can't even imagine what he would have made of Lerman. He would have been furious about the way that it turned, that it took his his alcoholism and turned that into Nick Carraway. He would have absolutely hated that, but that's different from the 20s. Um, but he also would have just hooted with laughter at the way it depicted the 20s. I mean, look, it wasn't, a, it, yes, they were partying, but I mean, it wasn't like surreal, you know? I mean, they were still, it was still life. They were just having great parties. Um, so it's been, yeah, it's been wildly mythologized. And uh, um, and actually in some ways, you know, as is often the case, historians will tell you that the reality is more interesting than the myth. And um, that's why we do what we do, because when you dig into it, the, the history is actually more interesting and what people were really doing and, and the, the tensions and the, and the contrasts and, the, um, and the, the ways in which we can see various kinds of trends and, and um, cultural ideas emerging is fascinating. And the myths are just cartoons, really. Um, they're pretty 
But oh, actually, what we should end with is um, we'll give should we give the last word to Ernest Hemingway, who we haven't mentioned yet, who of course is one of the great American writers of the era, came into uh, his celebrity in the 1920s, and um, his first great novel, which is uh, The Sun Also Rises called Fiesta in the UK. Um, and it's called Fiesta in the UK, by the way, because the sun also rises is a dirty joke and the British editors got it and they refused to uh, use that title. There are other things that rise um, and Jake Barnes's doesn't. Um, and uh, and that's why it's called the sun also rises. Uh, and it's exactly the kind of prayer aisle joke that Hemingway liked to make. Um, anyway, but anyway, the last line of the sun also rises is um, I think the is what we should give the last word to the question of how the media has influenced our ideas of the 1920s. And that line is, isn't it pretty to think so? That was Sarah Churchwell, Professor of American Literature and Public Understanding of the Humanities at the School of Advanced Studies, which is part of the University of London. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.